I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Hi, Violet. Hi, Robin. Um, so I want to do something to start. Um, I don't know if you noticed out front they're doing a visualization of this talk. Did you see that by the front door? No, I didn't. So it's pretty excellent, actually. Um, okay. I don't know if people in this room have seen it, but they're sort of visualizing the word count, you know, sort of the incident of different words like oh, really? energy or space or aliens or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, we should hack the visualization um, by choosing some word and just saying it like 50 times. I <laughs> and, I want, and, I want, and I want you to choose the word. You want me to choose the word? Yes. Uh, I, I get accused of using words repeatedly in talks, so I'm, I'm a little shy about doing something like this. But uh, how about the word conversation? Conversation. Yeah. Conversation. 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 Because I have some questions for you about conversation, actually. Okay. Because you are a man of, you're a writer, and you're a man of many, many hats, and you have done a lot of really interesting things in a lot of different media forms. You've been at Current, you worked for Wired for a while, now you're at Twitter. And so you've been involved in a lot of conversations. And as a writer, you're naturally involved in conversation. Mm -hmm. So what I want to know is with all of the different, and sort of some of the things that you've done are a little anarchistic because you're a little bit of a, well, a, you say a media inventor mm -hmm. because you like to mold and shape different types of media and channel different ideas and thoughts through media. And I think you probably spend a lot of time observing how these ideas go and where they go in mm -hmm. different conversations. Mm -hmm. So what I want to know is how you see the arc of what you're doing with what you've done in media. How are you, or how are you interested in changing the overall conversation in the media that you work in? Okay. Conversation. And conversation, if you want to do it on a macro level, if you want to do it on a macro level, you could. I mean, for instance, like, I take a look at your oeuvre and I'm like, wow, this guy's done pointer. I mean, a lot of really yeah. interesting, cool stuff. Mm -hmm. But and now you're at Twitter and you're like the media dude at Twitter. Um, so you're, you know, you're running a blog that where you're helping like MTV do stuff with Twitter. And mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, so how does that? I mean, how do you see yourself changing this larger conversation about what these certain garden variety corporations can do with? Mm -hmm the individual power of the conversation on Twitter? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a gigantic question. Um, I'll, yeah, I'm actually but I was really wondering, because part of me just wanted to come up here and just go, dude, what are you doing? What, what is going on? <laughs> I, will, I will tell you, there's, there's a couple different levels, but I'll actually be completely honest. And, and this is actually one of the reasons I was sort of asking Jill about vocation and kind of what leads you into different things. Um, especially in the beginning, but throughout all the things I've done, I've actually always been driven... So you're right that I like to observe and I like to sort of theorize and come up with new models and things. But I've always been driven pretty fundamentally by, I don't know, it's, it's almost emotional. It's just the sense of what's actually the most fun and the most fulfilling. And I think there's, there's probably going to be some resonance here between us because just as a case in point, when I was first starting out, I was doing kind of, this was like 2002, 2003, mm -hmm. just when blogs were sort of this new thing and right. everyone was sort of getting excited about them and discovering them. And I was doing two things at once. I was writing traditional articles, you know, mm -hmm. long 3,000-word things. They were still posted online. This wasn't even dead trees. It was still all on the web. Okay. Um, but, so I would, but I would sort of post these long things with no comments, just very like 
here it is, a perfect piece of finished journalism for you to read and enjoy. Okay. At the same time, I'd be writing blog posts with comments and sort of connected to all these other things. Right. And the difference, and we're talking on the most basic emotional, like what makes you excited to do your work every day level, the blog posts were blowing the traditional stuff out of the water. So much more satisfying yeah, as a writer. Yeah, satisfying is the right yeah. word, exactly. And, and I mean, really, it, it, to this day, I look at people who do the other kind of stuff, who sort of create this work and then put it out there, and it's like throwing pennies down a well and, like, yeah. you know, you, and never hearing the splash. Right. I don't know right. how they do it. Um, so, so, I don't I mean, know how they live with themselves, actually. Fun, fundamentally, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, fun, fun, fundamentally, you know, there's... there's some big ideas, but it's almost, it's a little more, I don't know, almost animal than that. Just kind of like, yeah. you know, what, what, where I've gotten positive feedback in terms of like, oh, this is good, this is fun, I can do this, I can do this another day, I can do this another day. That's what took me to Twitter, the fact that Twitter was this kind of, it takes that feedback loop and makes it even faster and more sort of nourishing, I guess. So do you think that you were driven by the, it sounds, I mean, this, it's very, very familiar what you're, t what you're mm -hmm. talking to me about, sort of, you know, seeing the, the big difference between, you know, old school media and journalism presentation, regardless of all of the other factors involved, just as a writer, and then suddenly being in a position where you're actually having a relationship with your, re with your readers, mm -hmm. and a relationship, an ongoing relationship with the material, mm -hmm. and also, you know, realizing that you're subverting the channels of distribution. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds to me almost like, I, I wonder... Is it that conflict that drew you into moving into alternate forms of media and media distribution? When you say conflict, do you mean that sort of old media, new media divide and that yeah, sort of insurgent you're sort of rebel thing? Yeah, both, and you're like, this feels good and this doesn't feel good. And, I mean, I, I'll and you also seem like you've sort of intuited your way through it. Yeah, as well. yeah, intuition. Well, that's another great word. Vocation and intuition. Those are both good. I don't know, tags, vocation, 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 <laughs> vocation. I think um, I'm going with conversation. Um, <laughs> the you know I've actually ne the, the the battle the sort of um, antagonism has never been super appealing to me I've always liked I've always liked the synthesis more I mean something that I always tell journalists I've been telling them for a long time is that um, you do the best work when you take the values the kind of old fashioned values of journalism like you know honesty and authenticity and veracity and verification um, and fairness not necessarily balance but fairness. And you bake those into new stuff. You can do that. You can you can use those values as effectively in a Twitter feed as you can writing a thirty thousand word piece for the New York Times magazine. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I always I always find the sort of the, the old the old versus new like throwdown like in panels like this right where like I'd be from a newspaper and you'd be a blogger and we'd like kind I've of, done that before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's I think it's such I think it's so boring um, and so not true anyway. So mm -hmm. why bother? Yeah, it ends up being not productive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how are you changing the conversation with what you're doing at Twitter? Or do you see yourself as doing that? I, I think so. Um, and part of it, you know, it turns out that it happens mostly, this is something I've learned actually, just in the last nine months or so working at Twitter. You can make big pronouncements um, and you can sort of, you know, put forward big theories and, you know, sort of think pieces about the future of media. But it really happens in terms of actually making progress and getting new work out there that, that is sort of different um, in terms of actually doing like media invention, it totally happens person by person. It happens sitting down, I mean, not, not like this, but in you know, a meeting or over coffee with someone at a media company who's sort of curious and maybe doesn't want to admit that they're curious about this stuff, um, and talking it through with them and coming up with something. And um, maybe it shouldn't have surprised me, um, but the degree to which it really is this sort of just like, 
person by person, organization, organization, organization by organization. Battle's not the right word, because it's, again, it's not a battle, it's more just a, it's a campaign, um, maybe like a political campaign, and you really do win it by like knocking on one door and then knocking on the next door and knocking on the next door. So you see it as an individualistic process, or, an, or a process that has more of an individual or a, a directly connected experience involved. I think so, I think so, and you have to sort of take new ideas. I mean, if, if you're talking about using Twitter, um, you can't just say, everybody, use Twitter. You have to sort of mold it into the stuff that people are working on. So if it's MTV, you sort of, sort of, you know, you meet them halfway, talking about like big spectacles, and you talk about musicians on Twitter, and you talk about all of their fans talking about Jersey Shore on Twitter or whatever it is. If you're talking to the New York Times, it's a very different conversation. You're talking about news and breaking news, and you know, sort of learning interesting things about Chile's re reaction to the Chilean miners or whatever it is. Um, the sort of un the core idea is the same, but you yeah yeah you have to be specific. Yeah. I'm I'm increasingly skeptical of giant overarching theories sort of handling everything. Yeah, I think that's really smart. Um, I'm thinking of Twitter in terms of a use case because what it is is it's it's a just a, a rapid status update connect tool essentially, mm -hmm. and there will be other Twitters mm -hmm. and and. What's interesting is to see the impact of something that is an instant status update from one individual that grows like a spore and moves, and of course, you know all the exciting data mining and graphing that mm -hmm. goes along with, you know, seeing how news stories are told and how news stories are are sourced increasingly through this type of a communication model. And I'm wondering how you see these individually driven or people. I mean, it's it eventually becomes crowdsourcing, but it all starts mm -hmm. with an individual or two. Mm -hmm changing what happens with news media? Well, I want to, so I'll, I'll tell you one thing that's really important, but I want to sort of connect it back around to you, because this was my... you kind of geek out on news media. What's that? You kind of geek out on news media. I completely geek out on yeah, news media, absolutely. Um, media in general, so, so the one thing that's super interesting to me, I've, I've had this on the brain just because I've been reading about this a lot recently, and also because we were talking earlier, some, there were conversations about things like lenses and pictures of far-off planets and telescopes and things like that. Um, I think one of the really quiet revolutions maybe it's not as quiet as I think it is, but one of the sort of things that has snuck up on us is that everybody is a photographer all the time. Like, the, the way photography fits into our lives is so weird now. I mean, if you, if you just think about the way people thought about cameras or taking pictures, even four years ago, it's completely different now. Absolutely. So, obviously, that has huge, almost unimaginable implications for news when suddenly we can, something happens and you sort of capture it from 95 different angles and you can find ways to sort of synthesize that. I mean, there's, there's no question, this is already happening, but there's just no question that the signature images of big events are increasingly going to come from sort of people's cell phones or, or, or whatever they end up being, being called um, sort of there on the scene. But it changes more than just news, right? I mean, this changes yes. the way we think about ourselves and communicating with people. And I think it probably changes sex, too, or changes relationships. And I'm curious when you think, because I know that's something that you spend a lot of time thinking about and writing about and Never. talking about, um, maybe most of your time. Um, but photography, what's, I mean, I don't know enough about the, the overall sort of context over not just the last five years, the last 20 years or the last 100 years. But when you think about phones and maybe Twitter and um, photography, how does this, this kind of change things? Is it changing things? In terms of sexuality? Yeah, and the way we express ourselves sexually, the way we sort of, just the whole sort of culture of sex. It's changed uh, almost every aspect of sexuality, absolutely. I mean, in, and we're talking in Western nations, certainly, um, where we're free to do this. Mm -hmm. 
And it's, it's changed the idea of self because we're given much more of a mirror and much more of an accurate mm-hmm. mirror of taking a look at ourselves. Mm-hmm. And one we can control a little more, right? I'm well, sort of a, well, I'm so, I, so I always feel like we've I all become masters of self-portraiture now. Maybe I'm... Oh, well, definitely masters of the MySpace angle. Mm-hmm. But right. I, I don't think that... I think that there's a lot of myth around how much control you have when you take pictures of yourself and what you do with them mm-hmm. or pictures of other people and what you do with them mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what, what I think is particularly interesting about the way that pictures and the ability of everyone to take pictures has changed sexuality is that it's been part of the gigantic disruption of the porn distribution complex. And what it's allowed people to do is to start to make their own pornography and show themselves and start to show what they actually really want to see and show a much more realistic and, and I think healthier picture of human sexuality rather than the the mass-produced stereotypes that we had been accustomed to seeing for decades after decades mm-hmm. or having to go source out secretly, which then maybe didn't also present a very healthy portrait of sexuality. So I think that overall it's a disruption that's incredibly, incredibly good overall culturally. I think it's incredibly empowering, especially for women, because it's allowed women to take control of their image back to themselves, not just in the way they present themselves and saying, hey, my unenhanced body is actually really hot and here's a whole bunch of people Mm -hmm. that think so, Mm -hmm. but also in that in order to get distribution, if a woman wants to monetize her image, she doesn't need to go to a man and have him do something to help her monetize it Mm -hmm. or give her money to anyone else. Mm -hmm. So it's also eliminating a lot of the myths and the stereotypes of women doing things because they're being coerced in a sexual context. Um, women being less empowered around their own sexuality and having less control of it, and also women needing to go to men. I mean, it's it's a heteronormative assumption, of mm-hmm, course, mm-hmm. because it's, by and large we're dealing with the gender binary, but it's it's actually, you know, that and the media distribution disruption that we've been, you know, excitedly surfing, at least you and I have, mm-hmm. for the past 10 years, I think it's huge, and I think it's incredibly healthy. It's let's, really let's, let's zoom it out a, a little more, just because mm-hmm. this is a long now and sort of long-term thinking event, because I'm thinking now, back in terms of news, I think there might actually be some interesting, su- surprising parallels here. So in terms of news, so of course the, the, the most recent thing of the last five years is this democratization of this sort of image production, mm-hmm. but really the fact that news is largely visual is itself pretty new thing. I mean, yes. it's, it's fun. I, I don't know if you've ever done it to go back and look at old, old, old newspapers and they're just <laughs> like all text and sort of like a woodcut drawing in the corner and you right. realize that the news, it was, it was your imagination. You like, you didn't maybe even know what the president really looked like. Well, you it had was also sort of, storytelling, which mm-hmm. is something that I think that we need to not lose. Well, well I mean, that's interesting. So, so with news, we've seen, we've seen this, this rise of sort of the image, and, and especially for people who read a lot and are sort of always online consuming words. I think it's easy to forget that most people sort of get their news and, and process news really visually. I mean, it really is sort of salient images and sort of clips of video and people on a TV screen. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't in, know how much of a... In Western cultures. In Western cultures. What I do you mean? mean? Well, in, in a lot of... I've recently been... Um, doing a little bit of research about non-Western cultures and open internet access mm-hmm. and access to, to news and media mm-hmm. and culture. And not a lot of the world has access to an open internet. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have access to YouTube. They don't have access to, to uh, you know, the upper classes certainly do. Mm-hmm. But by and large, a lot of very large nations don't have access to this type of news media. Well, of course, so. but they still have TV, right? And TV is, I mean, for as much as we talk well, about the internet, TV is still... Unless it's state-controlled. But, but even then, but even then, so the, the sort of the provenance of the images is sort of questionable. But right. it's still images. You still get it through images. Okay. 
But continue. But so <laughs> rabbit to, hole to connect it to connect it back around. Um, and I don't know how much of a, a historian of sex you are. Um, if you kind of like zoom way out and look at the last few hundred years, or even like the last thousand years, does the just just the rise of images, you know, photography, video, does that change things? What what does sex even in the culture of sex look like before it was easy to you know mass produce and distribute images? Before the mass distribution of images, well, I think that. For those who are sighted, I think that inherently sex is a very visual thing anyway because sex, if you're not looking at the act as you do it, I would say nine times out of ten, most people have a running fantasy in their head of either what they're doing or what they're thinking of or something else. Uh, because sex is so reliant on fantasy and because the, the majority of the amount of sex that most people have is masturbation, and that is a very fantasy-reliant thing. So it's a matter of, are you talking about images that you're mm -hmm. running in your head as a tape mm -hmm. or images that we're sort of, you know, finding in a mass-produced way? I mean, sure, you could say, oh, well, there were you know, derogotypes. There were, mm -hmm. you know, you could go, you know, the guys could go and watch a smoker, you right. know, at their buddy's house <laughs> if they had a stag film or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and now it's, you know, it's... It's 4chan. It's it's you know right. it's just like go wherever you want. And yep. You can you yep. can find things that you want to that make you want to take your brain out and put mm -hmm. it in a pile of bleach and you know mm -hmm. wish you never saw it. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> but you can also find a lot of things that are are what you've always imagined, mm -hmm. and oftentimes enacted by professionals in safe contexts. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think that. I don't know that we haven't ever been a sexually visual culture. That's, it's interesting. One interesting thing. I, Good Psychology Today article about, a, about the power of fantasy and masturbation and really? how important images are. I mean, I would actually love to. I would love to know, and it, it might just be a question that's impossible to answer. How much? Because it's feedback loops, right? I think a lot about feedback loops and, and the way mm -hmm. those work. And seeing movies changes the way that we visualize things. You know, before there were oh, movies. I I would love to know. I'd love to be able to do that. I think it's just impossible to kind of you know know or, or hear described how people visualize things, like what that, the mind's movie camera. See, even our, mm -hmm. even that we can't get away from it, the vocabulary. We talk about the mind's movie camera, or you said, um, you said the tape in your mind, which mm -hmm. I love, because of course we don't even use tape yeah, anymore, I know, but we like, still, and you, yeah, you see it, these great layers. In the news, so and so sex tape, you're like, yeah. what tape? There's no tape. There was never any tape. <laughs> <laughs> it was on a phone. Using the word tape. I love that stuff. That's another, that's another, I will say that's another reason, um, back to your original question, why do I like this stuff? I like it because it doesn't just sort of sit out here it affects us. Um, you know, stories and different kinds of media give them a little time and they actually kind of change our brains and what it means to be human, too. I think that's pretty cool. In a better way? I think so. I'm an optimist. I actually think so. I think, I think all of this stuff synthesizing together, kind of stewing in this big pot, I think the soup gets tastier over time. Oh, um, very good. But very other people might, dis might disagree. It's definitely different, and that's at least always interesting. Yes. Evolution. Conversation. Conversation. Conversation, conversation, <laughs> conversation, conversation. Okay. Thank you, Robin. A pleasure. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.